Hey, good morning, everyone. It is so great to see you out here. Got a lot of new faces that I'm seeing through here, so this is wonderful. And uh, being as the effect is a little bit off the beaten path in terms of, of mainline Christianity, in terms of trying to follow Jesus from a first century Hebrew Aramaic point of view, you know, there are going to be things that we say in here sometimes that you're going to be hearing for the first time or maybe just in a different way that you're uh, not quite used to hearing and it tweaks you a little bit. Please come up and ask questions afterwards, you know, and, and talk to us because don't want anyone going away with impressions that they can't quite grasp or figure out. We would love to have those kind of conversations. Uh, I had one of those last Sunday and it was just terrific. You know, someone said, hey, you got 30 seconds. I just want to talk to you. It's like... I got more than 30 seconds. It's okay. You know, we'd love to be able to talk because this is the bedrock as far as we're concerned. When I grew up Catholic and then switched over to evangelical Christianity, I could never really make sense of scripture, of doctrine, theology, and practice. It just never gelled with me. It never matched up with my common sense. And, and the practical just aspects of living our lives from day to day. And I got to the point where I wondered whether I was even a Christian anymore, if I could follow this Jesus because of the way that he was being presented to me and the way that I understood the scripture as I read it in English. But as I moved into the origins of Christianity and the original languages, I met a Jesus there that I'd never been introduced to before. And this Jesus is the Jesus that I can follow for the rest of my life. And he spoke with, with such common sense. And he always pointed to the Father's love. And he just brought everything in the scriptures that seems so difficult back to clarity again, putting it back into that context, the ancient context, the context in which it was first delivered. And that's what we're always trying to do here. But sometimes it sounds different, and sometimes we approach things differently. So just ask the questions, please, and, and come up and talk to me or Frank or, or Scott or whomever. Just uh, talk to somebody if there's something that's tweaking you. That being said, we want to tweak you. Have you ever heard the old saw that a sermon brings comfort to the uncomfortable and discomfort to those who are comfortable? You know, it should be something that just knocks you a little bit off your chair just enough so that you know you're hearing something different something new, but not so much that you start picking up rocks. So somewhere in that space is what we, what we want to hit. So yeah, it should be something that you're hearing differently. When Jesus spoke to his first hearers, he blew them away with the things that he said to the point that many of them wouldn't follow him anymore because he was trying to get underneath the hood, pry open the veneer, get through the things that they thought they already knew and understood to a truth that lay beyond that. And that's what we're trying to do in here as well. For the last few months, we've been going through a kind of a series, sort of an impromptu series. It was a series that I didn't know I was in until I was halfway through it um, type of thing. But dealing with trying to understand this way of Jesus, capital W, Jesus formulated a way. He said, I am the way. He identified himself with the way. But it was also a way that was meant to be followed. It wasn't as if he was the way and we could just draft on behind him or hang on to his, the hem of his cloak and be pulled along. His first followers, followers called themselves followers of the way. Not followers of Jesus, but followers of the way. And even though they identified the way with Jesus and saw them as identical, 
It was a reminder to them, and I suppose anyone that they were talking to, that they had to follow this way as well. The way is active, it's not passive. The way is something that we have to energetically, you know, pour effort into in order to get to this place that Jesus is trying to take us, that he calls kingdom, this quality of life that we can have right here, right now, not in heaven at some point, but right now, a quality of life that is completely connected, unified, aware of the unity of everything and everyone in God's spirit. To be able to see the world in each moment of your life with that sort of double vision that you can see the connectedness underneath, in the midst of, inside of everything that you're dealing with is this life of kingdom that can't be expressed in any other way except gratitude and a feeling of basic okayness, that everything is going to be okay in some way, shape, or form. This understanding of kingdom, this understanding of Jesus' way is so different than the way that we normally think. It was also so different than the way the Jews of Jesus' day thought that it's not going to all come to you at once. Just because you comprehend and understand the concepts that we're talking about doesn't mean that anything is going to change in your life. It just takes time for such a radically different way of being to seep down, to absorb. And really what's happening is as you move through and are willing to let go of successive layers of your own assumed identity, who you think you are, all those connections, all those programs for happiness and programs for survival that you put in place to this point to get through another 24 hours, when those start to fall off, more starts to be able to actually present itself to you. You can start to see more and more truth as more and more of the falseness falls off, sloughs off as you move through this way. And so it's going to be a gradual process. It's not going to happen overnight. And it, it's, it, it took me years from the time that I actually understood what Jesus was talking about from a Hebrew-Aramaic point of view to the time that I started to feel any real change. But it's just following the path, following the path and see what happens, opening up to it. You know? Now, I'm hoping it's not going to take you as long as it took me because I'm particularly hard-headed. And also, I didn't have anyone around me supporting the journey, mirroring the journey, showing me the journey, other than what I was reading and a few individuals that I was able to talk to. That's what this community is all about. It's a community to nurture and support this kind of journey. That's why it's so important to talk to people and, and, and start to really dig in and find out what's going on. Two weeks ago, two Sundays ago, three Sundays ago, whatever it's been now, we talked about um, process to person was the name of the message. We talked about Jesus as both the way, but also a person. Jesus is a person, but he's also a process. And that process is not about intellectual certainties, not about trying to make things certain conceptually, theologically, trying to figure out God, figure out life. We talked about how life is supposed to be unsolvable, even absurd at times. That life as it's constructed for us is a lifelong challenge to our intellectual certainties. All the things that we think we know, all the things that we cling on to and use as our visible means of support 
Life is constantly challenging, constantly tearing down, if we let it. Or we can double down and just put that stake more and more firmly in the ground. Build our walls thicker and thicker around the things that we think we know and the things that we think we believe. Which means that the truth that's out there, the truth that's being presented to us every moment, can't possibly get through. Can't possibly come in. Take a look at... How all of you have heard of Soren Kierkegaard, famous Danish philosopher. Take a, I put it into the inserts here. Just take a look at some of these quotes. He just nails it here. <laughs> I love this first one. Take away paradox from the thinker and you have a professor. Yeah. yeah I mean, maybe you have to go to college to appreciate that one. But if you've ever gotten to that person, that didactic thinker, the one that it's just black and white and it's just all there, and this is the way it is, and what didn't you understand about that? You know, that's what he's talking about. Someone who can't embrace paradox, who can't see mystery, can't see that there are things that we can't know, that there still is uncertainty to life. You know, that's what he's calling a professor. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Love that. Looking forwards, it's always going to learn, look uncertain. Looking backwards, we see the path taken, we understand, and we want the future to be that clear. Hey, how's that working out for you? You know, it just doesn't happen that way. Life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. And what Jesus is saying is that experience isn't passive. It's not like you just sit at the corners of your life and experience what's passing through. It's experience on purpose. It's experience with purpose. It's making choices along a path that hasn't been outlined completely, but whose markers and milestones will be known as you move through it. This is what Jesus is showing us. Experience with purpose. And then finally, the truth is a snare. You cannot have it without being caught. You cannot have the truth in such a way that you catch it but only in such a way that it catches you. That's what it is about truth. As we move through life, it catches us. It presents to us. It comes to us from the sides where we didn't even see it coming. As we are moving along our supposed objective, that's why the process of life is what's important, to move through it with that purpose and just see what happens, see what presents if truth is going to catch us. And of course, we believe that the truth is a person, so that's a really good thing, to be caught by truth. The second, uh, the t- Sunday afterwards, called Always Today, we were talking about the fact that we're going to revert to our intellectual certainties at every step of the way along life if we're not aware of what we're doing and are working in the other direction. To try to live life as an ongoing uncertainty is a really difficult thing for us to do until we've come to terms with life on its own terms. But to go through life not knowing what's coming and not feeling that you're necessarily adequate to what may be coming around the corner that you can't see is so fearful. It's so anxiety-ridden that we're going to want to retreat back into something that we can wrap around us a fortress that we can build around ourselves in our minds, imagining that the things we know, the things we believe, the theology that we hold, the doctrine is absolute and absolutely correct and everybody else is wrong and this is going to save us. And so we resort back into that if we're not careful. And so 
we're always trying to live in a different way. Allowing there to be uncertainty, making friends with the uncertainty, and not constantly trying to fill in the blanks with what we already know. That day we, we did those uh, Proverbs that the elementary first grade school teacher had given to her students. I don't know if you recall that. She gave them the first half and they were supposed to fill in the second half. You know, so the, the kids came up with all the darndest things. You know, you always strike when, when, and we would say the iron is hot, and the kids said when the bug is close. It was those kinds of things, you know. They were filling in the Proverbs with what they already knew. We do the same thing with life. We fill in the blanks of life, the uncertainties, the mystery, everything that makes life worth living with things we think we already know and come up with something that has nothing to do with what life is all about. We pretend that we already understand and understand literally what scripture is telling us, what life is telling us. And once we do that, then we can safely keep it at a distance. We understand it, we get it, it's out there someplace, right? But it doesn't have to come inside. It doesn't have to challenge me. It doesn't have to disturb me, move me off my chair a little bit. And so therefore it doesn't change me. And this is what it's all about. I wanted to read just a little bit. Thomas Merton, who was a Trappist monk um, and uh, considered one of the true spiritual masters that our nation has produced, he wrote a tiny little book. It was basically just a published essay on opening the Bible, how to understand the Bible, how to approach the Bible. And listen to what he says here. It is the very nature of the Bible to affront, perplex, and astonish the human mind. Hence, the reader who opens the Bible must be prepared for disorientation, confusion, incomprehension, and perhaps outrage. The Bible is without question one of the most unsatisfying books ever written, at least until the reader has come to terms with it in a very special way. But it's a difficult book to come to terms with. Far easier, perhaps, if one just pretends the question is all settled in advance. One hears from others that this is a sacred book, takes their word for it, and resolves not to get involved. Let them read it in the churches. We respect them for it. We respect their book. But above all, let it be their book. We will let them read it. And perhaps at times we will respectfully listen to their reading. We might even go so far as to read a little of it with them in the way they read it. And so, from the start, we tend to take a curiously alienated stand with regard to the Bible, even when we are believers. We approach the Bible cautiously, taking into account the claims that are made for it by others. And the claims cannot be ignored, but they are the claims of others who tell us what we ourselves need before we have a chance to determine our own needs and formulate our own questions. And they tell us what the Bible demands of us before the Bible itself has a chance to make known its own claims. Subconsciously, without even thinking about it, this is what we do to protect ourselves from something that comes from such a different place that it does disorient us, does disturb us. That's too frightening. That's too scary. And so we stay safe. But if we can take time to really consider Jesus' message and Jesus' ministry, Jesus' miracles even, as spiritual at core, not just literal, not just reading at the surface of the text, but actually moving down into the spirituality, 
We talked about this in this message. When the blind hear and the deaf see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and we read all those miracles and signs of Jesus literally, physically, we miss the fact that they also have this other meaning that the blind are seeing. People who hadn't seen truth before are beginning to see it. They are breaking down all those walls, taking off those layers of false identity and being able to see something they didn't see before. When the deaf hear, it's because they are becoming open to something that they had never even considered before. When the lame walk, it's moving past the paralysis of fear and anxiety, the sense of risk that keeps us from taking the first step. Jesus said that he was here to bring good news to the poor. And the poor understood from an ancient Semitic point of view was anyone who was just off perfect relationship, health, finances, work, all of that. In other words, shalom. The idea of shalom was a, was a perfect mix of all human connection. To be less than that was to be poor. To be less than that was to be in sin. Jesus came for all of us who are missing the mark of that perfect sense and experience of kingdom in our lives, that there is this good news, that there's a love and acceptance from your Father in heaven that can't be lost because it can't even be gained. And so as he's talking to us, and we see this at spiritual level, then we realize how it touches us directly in every moment and every day. And it starts to take on a different cast. There's an immediacy to it. There's something that is challenging us to move in new directions that we hadn't done before. Then we moved into feeling our way. And what we were talking about last week was that Jesus is a man as well as God. We spend so much time looking at Jesus as divine, Jesus as God, that we miss the fact that he's fully a man. And the scriptures are so plain on this, and we read them through last week, that Jesus is fully human, that he had to do everything that we have to do to move along this way. And that if he hadn't done it, then he wouldn't have been able to teach it to us. This is so important for us to see, to consider the fact that Jesus is a person and a process He's the way and the way shower who experienced everything that we experienced and had to experience everything in order for him to be able to show us what this looks like in human form. What does it look like to be one with the Father in human form? And then he said, these things that I do, you can do and will do if you trust me, trust this way, trust this way of living He'll do these things and even greater things than these, he said. But he can't express it exactly. It's not the way it works. This last quote here from Martin Mull. You probably know Martin Mull is a comic actor, but he's also a great and started out as, a, as an artist, as a painter. And uh, he's also a musician. He's just one of these Renaissance kind of guys. But see what he writes here. He said, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. I love that. Writing about music or writing about God, if you will, is like dancing about architecture. In other words, you can't do it. You can't write about something that is purely experiential. Music is experiential. You have to hear it. You can't just write about it. And to read about music, to read about God and think you know that thing is illusion. 
Because until we experience it in the vibrations in the air, in the moments of our lives, we don't know anything about it. And this is what he's trying to tell us right here. Jesus couldn't speak about this directly. He had to point to it. And that's why he used the metaphorical language, the figurative language, all the hyperbole, all the giant crazy language, the stories, the parables, to try to point to something. He said, it's like this. It feels like that. Remember when you lost that coin and you searched all over the house for it and then you found it? Remember how that felt? Remember how you called all your friends and you had a party because you found that coin? He said, the kingdom of heaven is like that. He has to give us those kinds of stories to try to get us to get into, to evoke an experience that we can then identify with kingdom because we're going to think it's something else. And he's pointing. And then he lives it out and he shows us. And the people were so taken with Jesus. The scripture puts it so blandly that he taught with authority, not like the other teachers. But what does that really mean? It means there was something about Jesus that was so deeply connected and integrated and everything was one with him that they couldn't help but be drawn to him. And of course, I imagine the brilliance of his smile and always having an arm draped around somebody because he was living this life with that kind of energy, that kind of gratitude where he couldn't help but be pouring it out on everyone around him. Jesus had to travel the way so that he could teach the way, which means that Jesus had to leave home and had to leave home repeatedly, both literally and figuratively. And we touched on this last week, but I want to spend a little more time because Jesus had to leave what was familiar to him, what was comfortable to him, what seemed secure to him, what felt certain to him in order to be able to move along this way that he is trying to show us. Because what was happening is every one of those things, what was familiar, what was comfortable, what was secure, what seemed certain, were those layers of egoic identification that were blocking him from the full connection with his Father. And we talked about this. The scripture tells us that Jesus learned. He grew in wisdom and stature. And so that means he learned as we learned and became one with the Father. And that might seem jarring to you, depending on how you understand Jesus and his divinity, his Godhead. But read the scriptures. Read what they say. See how they show this, this growing in Jesus' life. It implies that Jesus had to learn, had to become this one. And it preserves four times in his life when he had to leave home leave the comfort and security of what he understood as home. The first one is when he's only 12 years old. And it's the story of the pilgrimage that the, the families would make to Jerusalem. There were three pilgrimage festivals during the year, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. The first two were in the spring, Passover and Shavuot, and um, they were just 50 days apart. And then in the fall, there was Sukkot. By the time the first century rolls around, many families understood they only had to go once a year because of the travel and the expense and everything. And so Passover was usually the ones that families went to. And interestingly enough, some sources tell us that only the men were obligated to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, not the women. And yet in this story, Mary goes along, showing her dedication to the process here. So the whole family goes. It was a three-day caravan journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem, about 80 miles. And so they go, 
And it's hard for us to understand what a pilgrimage festival meant to the city of Jerusalem. Ancient Jerusalem, the estimates of population vary, but probably the the population was around 100,000 people living in, in Jerusalem in the first century. At the times of these pilgrimage festivals, the population could swell to over a million. Jews were scattered all over the eastern Mediterranean and all of them would be coming, at least the men primarily, would be coming to Jerusalem, to the temple, to partake in the rituals as prescribed by Moses. Over a million people. It is an absolute chaotic zoo. The streets are jam-packed. The temple is packed. You know, everybody's going crazy. The money changers and the people that are selling what needs to be sold in order for people to be able to make their ritual offerings and doing what they need to do. And so it's like... Someone from Indiana taking their child into New York City with all that kind of craziness and then losing him there and not even realize they lost him because home alone, you know, that whole scenario. Jesus goes off on his own. He's 12 years old. Yes, that's the age of, of manhood. That's the age of becoming responsible to the law. And so this is a coming out story. This is a, a, a rite of passage for Jesus. He is separated from his family and they don't even realize it. The family would have traveled with their extended family and so they get on the caravan to go back home and they're a day's journey out and suddenly they realize Jesus isn't with them. They knew that. They assumed that he was with the other part of the family and he's not there. Panic. Imagine what that feels like. Ever lost your child for any period of time? I remember when I lost my, my young daughter, she, got, she was always an escape artist. Got out of her crib, got out of the house, got out of the gate, and she was two blocks away being brought by, back by another person. And, and there's just that feeling in your chest, you know, and, and, and it comes up from your stomach. That's what they were feeling for a, a full day, having to travel back a full day, and then a day of looking for him in Jerusalem to finally find him in the temple. That means for three days... They didn't know where their 12-year-old was. And when they find him sitting in the temple, just calmly discoursing and talking with the elders there and blowing everybody away with his knowledge, of course, they jump on him. And Mary says, like a good Jewish mother, why did you do this to us, son? You know? Why did you do this to me? And Jesus says, well, I'm supposed to be about my father's business. But at the same time, he was completely oblivious in his single-minded and, you know, youth adolescence, single-minded purpose that he had seen for himself, being called by this, this father, this, this unseen draw, but didn't think about the effect that it was going to have of the choices that he made. And I can imagine, as he's looking at his mother and seeing the panic in her face and seeing how much she was hurt and worried and, and terrified, because the scripture tells us that he then goes with them and submits to them in obedience. And so he changes his tack and realizes he's got to be present to the family. And to be in submission and being part of the family means that he followed his father's footsteps in his trade. And at some point, apparently, Joseph dies because Joseph is not mentioned in the later stories. Mary is mentioned all the way through um, the, the New Testament, but not Joseph, which means Jesus, as the firstborn, as the eldest, would have been the head of the household. He would have taken over He would have become the master craftsman. He is the one who would have been responsible for the family and all his siblings, which the the New Testament tells us. Jesus had siblings. And then this draw is pulling him along again. And so Luke tells us by age 30, it got so strong that he leaves to visit his cousin, John, 
who is baptizing in the river Jordan and is baptized him by him and then immediately is drawn away into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, which is a symbolic time. It means a time of trial and testing into a rebirth. How long was that time? Years? I want you to try to imagine the scene as Jesus, who maybe for 18 years has been the good son, has been the anchor, the rock of the household, holding everything together, the one that everybody looks to within the family, says that he has to leave, says that he has to go away. And he doesn't know how long, and he doesn't even know where he's going. I'm just going to go see my cousin John first, my brother John. I'm going to be baptized. Maybe he didn't even realize that. Imagine the reaction of the family. Imagine the tears. Imagine the outrage. Imagine the anger that Jesus, as the head of the household, would abandon his family, would leave them. Now, he waited 18 years. That means his siblings were at an age where they could take over. But imagine the pressure that he would be under. Imagine his mother's tears as he leaves everything that is known to him, everything that is survival to him, everything that is familiar, everything that is comfortable, everything that he knows, everything that says communion and family, because this thing is drawing him. And he's willing to let that go, at least for a time, and move out into this uncertainty, into this unknown. And there he passes through the tasks that he needs to go through and purges himself of all the human compulsions and drives that's described for us in the 40 days in the wilderness and comes back again. But he's not the same cowboy who comes back. We watched it all go a little while ago, so that's in my mind. Not the same cowboy. It's not the same Jesus. There's something so different about him. There is a centeredness. There is a gravitas. There is a power with him. And immediately he starts a home ministry. Either he moves his family to Capernaum from Nazareth after he comes back, or he had already moved his family to Capernaum. But their home is in Capernaum, and the New Testament tells us Jesus had a home. It was his home in Capernaum. And he comes back there, moves back in, and starts gathering his disciples, his followers, and he's teaching them, and he's doing his, uh, his signs and his wonders from that center. It's from his home based. But then he starts moving out again first locally within the Galilee and then further out into Judea and takes his ministry nationally. And take a look at the, the little um, quote here from Matthew 12. While he was still speaking to the crowds, and right before that, where is he speaking? He's in a synagogue in the Galilee as he's going out with his followers and moving through the countryside. And he goes into a synagogue, he's teaching there, and while he's still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers are standing outside. We're standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, to Jesus, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. What's going on here? Imagine the pressure that Jesus was under. He comes back. They want him to retake his place in the family. They want him to lock back into everything that he was before, but he's not who he was before. His identity is now one with the Father. And he has to move along that trajectory 
But the pressure to bring him back in, the anger again, the outrage. And here he is out teaching, and his mother and brothers come to him, presumably with some pressing family issue. Something was wrong. Something needed your attention. Jesus, you've got to deal with this. You've got to fix this. Come on. Who is my mother and who is my brother? It's all of these. Jesus is moving his identity. He's moving his place. He's leaving home again. And of course, the last leaving home is the crucifixion, the ultimate leaving home of everything that this life has to offer. And what does he do there? He makes sure that his mother is taken care of. He says, John, this is your mother, and mother, this is your son. He makes sure that she is cared for, that everything is going to be able to move forward. But he's leaving home again. As Jesus is following his way, there's a constant cycle of having to leave home, leave what is comfortable, leave what is familiar, what feels certain. And this is the shape of the journey. This is the shape of our lives. It doesn't have to be physical. All right? You don't got to move out of your house. You don't have to leave Orange County. It's an interior journey that is happening here. Sometimes it's going to coincide with an exterior journey. Sometime the interior journey is going to have to take you someplace else physically and move you into new understanding of relationship. But that's not the primary purpose. The primary is the internal, what's going on inside. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where you had to leave a relationship, leave a place, leave home? Maybe you had to leave home for school, right? Go to college. What was that like? What did that feel like? You're excited about what was coming. You're excited about your newfound independence, but you're scared at the same time, and you're looking at your parents, especially your mother, and sure eyes are welling up as she sees this rite of passage taking place in front of her face. Remember that mix of emotions? How about if you left for the military? Some of you did military service. To leave for that, for a job, for a spouse, how wrenching that is every time you have to leave. And other people may not understand the reasons that you have for leaving, and that makes it even harder. If they don't get it, if they don't approve, and so you get that resentment and you get that anger and you get all of that emotion on top of what you are trying to deal with. This is what Jesus is showing us and showing us over and over and over again got another quote here at Matthew 12. These crazy quotes of Jesus maybe will start to make more sense to us put in this kind of context at Matthew 10. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace. Just as a clarification here, Jesus is the Prince of Peace and his peace he leaves with us. That word he uses there is shalom, the one I told you about that means the greatest amount of health and healing and wellness and, and, and relationship. The word he uses here is a different word that means calm or tranquility. All right? So now he says, don't think that I came to bring you calm or tranquility on the earth. I didn't come to bring that, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And we read that and it just makes absolutely no sense until you put it into this context and say, you know what? People are not going to understand necessarily where you're going and what you're trying to do and where this journey takes you. I was talking to a young man just last week and he was talking about how suddenly he is questioning everything that he thought he knew and reading more and more books that are taking him outside and he said it's causing a lot of problems in his relationships, a lot of problems with his church. And I said, I understand completely. That's the way it works. When you start to move outside of the confines of the group, the group gets rattled, right? Because this is their safety. The safety is in the herd. If somebody voluntarily leaves, that is calling them to also question their reasons for staying. And they're not ready to be questioned yet. And so what are they going to do? They're going to lash out. They're going to disapprove. They're going to be offended by your answering your own call. That's the sword. And if we continue to cling to the relationships and the people interiorly and exteriorly that are holding us in place, then the unfortunate translation is you're not worthy of me, but it simply means you can't go where I'm going. You won't ever be able to experience the complete freedom that is available to you if you're willing to just let it go. And the irony is, is all that stuff comes right back to you. All the relationship, all the family, in ways that are truly connective and not just codependent when you finally go through this process. But you've got to leave in order to be able to return and know the place for the first time. When I left Catholicism, and I didn't even really mean to leave it, it just seemed irrelevant to me in my early 20s, my mom was so hurt and so outraged, and every time I saw her, she was prepared with piles of tracts and tapes that she would give me so that I would come back to the one true church. She wanted me to come back to the one true church. And every time I had, went, went to visit her, I had to go through it. And, you know, I, I let her talk and listen to what she had. And, but I was on a different trajectory by then. When I finally, after trying so many other things, I came into the Mormon church. I spent about a year in the Mormon church and I wanted so much to belong to that community because the community is so great. But I couldn't hang with the theology, what actually was being taught there. And as I was pulling out, there was that, you know, I'm leaving my friends now that I've known for a year because they couldn't hang with me not believing or being baptized into their faith. And so I had to lose that community. And when I moved into the evangelical church, it was the same thing. I wanted to belong. But as I moved along this trajectory, it caused more and more friction. When I started teaching some of this in Bible studies at that church, it really caused friction. I had people get up and storm out and yell at me over their shoulder. I had one send a formal letter to the, to the senior pastor and said that I needed to be excommunicated, kicked out of this community because of what I was teaching. And they held what I lovingly call the Spanish Inquisition where I sat at a table with all of the elders and, and pastors around me and the accuser firing questions at me verbally to try to find out if I was orthodox enough to be able to stay. They ultimately said that I could. But I finally realized I can't stay here because even trying to teach, and, and by that time I was ordained and staffed, trying to stay within the faith statement I still was pushing the envelope too hard and creating too much separation, so I finally had to leave. And of course, poor Marion is being drugged around with all these gyrations. 
But there was a time in our marriage when I started down this path, there were books that I would bring home that Marion wouldn't let me keep in the house. They had to be put in the garage. Because if the lightning bolt struck, at least it would be the garage and not the bedroom, you know. But that, that's what I mean. It, 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 it separates you. It, it starts to tear at relationships because they can't understand what the heck you're doing. And why do you want to rock the boat anyway? I mean, this is fine. This is good. This works. What are you doing here? What's going on? Leaving home is never easy. It's never going to be easy. But it starts with this interior process. And that's really what has to happen. We need to let go of the things that we cling to mentally as our home before we would ever leave home physically. Why is this important? What does it look like if we don't leave home? What does it look like if we never question our belief set? If we never question the things that we have been indoctrinated with? I'll tell you what. It looks exactly like our society and our culture looks like today. I want you to think about our society politically, our society religiously, our society ethnically, racially. We have groups of people that are so diametrically opposed, polarized, mutually exclusive, that they don't even see the other side as fully human anymore. Even if they're talking about racial issues, you know, they don't see the other. Politically, there's no more discourse. There's no more conversation. People are already completely set in their opinions. They absolutely believe that they're right. And the other is not only wrong, but evil. They're evil. And as soon as they're evil, they're less than human. And we don't need to treat them as human anymore. We can use the foulest language. We can degrade them in ways that we would never do to our pets at home because they're no longer one of us. They're not even part of the human race anymore. And what is happening politically between left and right, Republicans and Democrats, what is happening religiously between Christians and Muslims, between Christians of different denominations and stripes and other faith traditions? And what is happening in all of our society. We're seeing this. I've had three people in just the last week come and talk to me about this and say, how am I supposed to deal with this society? Every time I listen to the news, I get angry. And how am I supposed to move through that? I don't want to feel angry, but I can't help what I'm feeling when I listen to what's going on. And, of course, if I've got a dog in the race, then I am going to be against this and for this, and I'm part of all of that. Reading things online, of course, is just a dip into the cesspool lately with, with the language and what goes on there. How do I live in this world? One man asked me. How do I do this? Jesus is showing us how we do this. And, he's show, and the world is showing us what it looks like when we don't. When we aren't willing to question our own beliefs, when we aren't able to admit a certain uncertainty in our own positions, when we just drink the Kool-Aid of the group and just move with the group mindlessly, without thought about what this is doing to other people or what it's doing to ourselves, we are doing the opposite of following the way. And we do this in our churches and we do this in our political parties and we do this at home on Facebook and Twitter. It doesn't really matter. It's the same person 
on both sides of the question or the divide, lobbing the bombs at the other side. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute, there's another way to do this. When we can finally stop clinging to the familiar, clinging to the acceptance of our own group, codependently, as if leaving the group were death. If we can see the opposition as fellow human beings trying to find a solution to very real problems, then we're starting to move through in a different way. I found this that I I wanted to end with. And it comes from a completely secular source, but the conclusions that they reach are perfect for what we're talking about here. If what we're trying to do is follow Jesus' way, which is going to necessitate us leaving home, the home that we have built within ourselves, what they call that process is the science of wisdom. And this is a group who are using scientific practices and scientific parameters to try to define what wisdom is. Because wisdom is a squishy subject, right? So how do you get your hands around it? What does it mean? What does it look like? And the interesting thing is that this is all put in the context of the election of Donald Trump last November. It's written by a Brit who has an American wife who is so absolutely shocked and horrified by the results of the election last November that it caused him to have to try to deal with reality in a new way. And he was someone who was studying wisdom already and was caught off guard. Listen to what he writes. It was 3.30 a.m. and my wife and I were crumpled in stunned silence in the back of a taxi racing through the deserted streets of South London. Our all-night U.S. election party on November 8, 2016 had taken an unexpected turn from a celebration to a tragedy. In defiance of all expectations, Donald Trump was soon to be the most powerful individual on the planet. In times like these, it can be hard to know how to respond. But a new field of scientific research has recently emerged which aims to provide guidance for navigating our unpredictable and messy lives in the real world. This new field is wisdom research. And it will come as no surprise to learn that it has been, go- it has been growing rapidly of late because things are getting crazier out there, right? A science of wisdom almost seems too audacious to say out loud, but a team of behavioral scientists in Berlin defined wise people as having expertise in the fundamental pragmatics of life. Expertise in just the practical details of living life, in other words. So essentially, they're life experts. Two aspects of their wisdom framework relate directly to the pressing questions I faced sitting shocked in the back of that taxi on election night. And you can take a look in your inserts. Wisdom part one. There is more than one perspective. Shocking concept, right? There's more than one perspective. We generally believe that we see the world around us as it is, as actual reality. Therefore, those that disagree with us are evidently out of line in some regard. The current political system is so brutally partisan that genuine attempts to understand the other view have all but disappeared. Wise people see that their view is only one of many and that only by seeking out alternative views can they expand their understanding of reality. Our political adversaries should not be viewed as fools, but rather as a potential means of broadening our understanding of the world. And so action one 
in dealing with the realities of life as is presented to us is to seek out other perspectives, not beat them down, bludgeon them to death. Seek out other perspectives and view your opponents not as fools, but as sources of alternative insight. Wow. Wisdom part two, recognizing and managing uncertainty. Many thinking errors and cognitive biases stem from overconfidence in our own knowledge or skill. Strong wisdom performers are especially good at engaging skillfully with uncertainty and were found to be acutely aware of the limits of their knowledge. They don't know anything, everything and they admit that they don't know everything. Yet they were still able to make reasonable best guesses, real-world decisions. They weren't paralyzed by recognizing the limits of their knowledge. This suggests that when forging a path of action, we need to do what we think is best, yet maintain a healthy skepticism of uncertainty in ourselves and in others. This also makes it much easier for us to update our beliefs as the situation changes around us. How important is that? Life is always handing us changes of situations. And if we can't change and adapt and move with that because we are so certain that this one viewpoint is absolutely right and must never change, that's what we see around us. Action two, then. Be aware that your understanding is always partial. We, each of us, sees through a glass darkly, to quote St. Paul. So maintain a healthy skepticism of certainty in yourself and in others. A skepticism of certainty. In other words, you're embracing uncertainty. You will ultimately make more progress by declaring your uncertainty than hiding it. So there I sat in the taxi, pretty certain and righteous that I was right and America was wrong. But I had to loosen my grip on my position and open up to a new possibility. I might be wrong. So in deciding how best to respond to the recent political shockwave, try activating your capacity for wise behavior by using the following strategies and asking yourself these questions. Look at the questions. Do you tend to believe that you alone see the world objectively? Or are you able to integrate multiple perspectives on a problem like top wisdom performers? Ask yourself this question. Can you do that? Do you alone hold the truth or can you learn something from people around you? Are you aware of the limits of your areas of knowledge? Do you find yourself frequently roaming into areas that you know very little about? Could you sit down with someone from the other end of the political spectrum or the religious spectrum and have a civil chat and perhaps even gain useful insight from them? Can you do that? Because if you can't, then you can't say that you're on the way of Jesus. You can't say that. The hallmark of love along the way of Jesus is loving the enemy, the person that you don't understand, the person that you don't get, the person that eats weird food and smells funny, or has a different political agenda, ideology, or hails from another church. Can you love that person? which doesn't mean you have to go pick out curtains. It just means, can you have a civil conversation with them? Can you give to them the respect that you would like them to be able to give you? If you can't do that, then you're not on the way of Jesus. 
Be ruthlessly honest with yourself. Ask yourself these questions. Look and see. Where are you offended? What offends you? How offendable are you? Where are the resistance points for you moving in any direction? Look at those and look at those deeply because they're pointing you like a laser exactly where you need to look, where the unfinished business lies, where you are not yet willing to leave home and move out into the new experience, the new level of truth that Jesus is trying to show us. Because truthfully, what we're actually training ourselves to do is to learn to see God and God's presence in every face, in every situation, in every leaf, in every vista that we are experiencing at the moment. What kingdom is, is realizing that all this stuff is imbued with God's presence, is part of God's personality, if you will. And to not see God in another person is to be able to dismiss them and treat them as less than human. And as soon as you are divided from another person, guess what? You're the poor that needs the good news preached to you. You're the blind that needs to be given sight, the deaf that needs to be given hearing, and the lame that needs to be given the ability to walk again. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, when you follow this way, when you question your beliefs, when you are willing to leave home and take the things that have been so sacred to you for so long and put them on the shelf for a while and allow yourself then to experience this moment without that crutch, then you are going to see the Father in a way that you've never seen him before. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Let's pray. Father, somehow we've got to be grateful even for the difficulties in life, for the disturbances and the disorientation, and for the offenses, for the anger. Because if we will allow it, these things will continue to guide ourselves to you. And that's what we want. We want to see more and more of who you really are. See how involved you are in every aspect and detail of our lives. So help us to become more and more willing. Help us to become entirely ready to leave home, to let go of these things that are encumbering us and blocking our view. Thank you for leaving no stone unturned on our behalf, Father, giving us everything that we need, giving yourself in human form to show us what this looks like so that we can follow after. But give us the strength to actually follow after, to do what we need to do, to find you. Thank you for loving us, Lord, and never, ever withholding that love. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.